I have not done this in a while. And um, I must, must say that um, I'm up here um, in large part because of the prayers of many of you over these last few years. And um, thank you. It's a, uh, it is a blessing to be a part of this body. And it's a, it's a great blessing to be able to share with you this morning from the Word of God. We've been going through Luke the past uh, well, number of months. And um, you ever wonder why there, there are four Gospels? You ever, any of y'all ever wondered about that? Yeah, I see some people shaking, you know, nodding yes. And, um, you know, one of the, the primary reasons is just this idea of perspective, right? If you have four people attending and watching one event, what's going to happen? Are they all going to give the same exact recap? No, they're not. And so this is you know, one of the wonders of the gospel to me in, in that the Holy Spirit moved on people and using their personalities, using their, their, their memories, using the way they think and the way they communicate, and through that gave us four wonderful Gospels, which, which give us greater insight into the life of Christ and his ministry. One of the things I, I love about Luke is this idea of, of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem as a new type of exodus, as a new type of exodus. Uh, chapters 9, uh, really beginning in verse 51 through the middle of chapter 19 are what's known as the travel narrative. And this begins in, at the end of, of chapter 9 with Jesus turning his face toward Jerusalem. Turning his face toward Jerusalem. And one of the reasons why this whole section, these, these next 10 chapters, are referred to by, by, by scholars, not all, but a good amount of them, uh, as, as a new exodus is the idea that Jesus is walking and following God in obedience as Israel should have. That makes sense. And in doing this, this is how he is fulfilling all righteousness. He lived a life perfect without spot or blemish according to the law. And in doing so, became the perfect sacrifice for us. So, so we find ourselves uh, about three chapters into this journey, this journey of Christ toward Jerusalem, toward his crucifixion. And um, it's interesting the things that, that, that are happening at this point uh, where, we, where we began uh, Jesus's uh, teaching on the rich fool, uh, which, by the way, is not autobiographical. Um, and, um, but um, we find Jesus at this point in somewhat of, a, of an intense moment. Um, he's been dealing with the Pharisees. He's talking about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I mean, these are, these are really, really heavy things. And... Um, and he, talk, and he has a lot to say about discipleship in this section as well. 
So he's calling people to righteousness, um, talking about deep things, serious things. And, and out of this moment, in the midst of the crowd, and this is verse 13, someone yells or speaks. I think he probably had to speak loudly. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Again, Jesus has just finished exhorting the crowd not to fear the rulers and authorities, nor to be anxious when brought to them to testify. For the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And what is the response to that? Someone starts complaining about their brother. You have to wonder every once in a while if Jesus just... Um, of course, you know, and, and of course he did because he was very man, you know, very God, but also very man. And so I, I can only imagine how, you know, at the moment, this, this might have been somewhat frustrating to me or to him. And, um, and so perhaps it wasn't the response that, that, that Jesus was looking for. But the truth is, this is the kind of conflict that a rabbi would be called into to mediate often. Uh, if there's a problem, especially something of inheritance, which is, you know, it has a very formal process, um, the rabbi, if there was a problem, would often be called in to, to mediate. Um, but Jesus' response must have caught the plaintiff by surprise. He doesn't say, okay. He just simply says, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? It sounds a bit harsh, doesn't it, on the outset? Um, and, and certainly wasn't what the, the plaintiff, this man who was complaining about his brother and, and inheritance, was, was wanting to hear. But, but what is Jesus doing here? Well, for one, and, and, and this is, if I can step back, when we talk about Jesus and his ministry, we talk about a th three, three identities. Jesus as prophet, Jesus as priest, and Jesus as king. Prophet, priest, and king. He was all of those things. And he was a prophet in, in the sense, he was an Old Testament prophet. And that he came, part of his ministry was prophesying to Israel, the people of Israel, the, you know, who were in covenant with God, calling them back to the Lord. Calling them back to the Lord. And so one of the things that, that we see in this moment is, is Jesus, uh, you, Luke bringing up these references from the Old Testament. And in fact, um, in Jesus' response, he seems to be alluding to uh, the prophecy that God gave Moses in Deuteronomy 18, 18, which the Lord, speaking to Moses, said, a prophet who will come will speak my word, says the Lord, and whoever doesn't listen to the words of this prophet, God himself will require it of him. Now, that phrase, require it of him, is going to come back at toward the end of this passage. So just pay attention to that. And, and secondly, this, this idea of, of you know, Jesus' response and, and, and being like Moses... Um, echoes a, a, a section from Exodus chapter 2, verse 14, when Moses was, was, finds himself in this, this place where two Hebrews are fighting, and he intervenes. And their response to Moses is, who made you or a prince, 
a prince or a judge over us. So again, what I, what I want you to, I'm pointing these things out so that you can see this, this echo of the Old Testament within there, within this passage. So, so, so Jesus is, is with his response making it clear that, that he is a prophet. And, and secondly, Jesus seems to be signaling as well that, that he is no ordinary rabbi. You know, his, his refusal to mediate is showing that he's not an ordinary rabbi. And of course he isn't. He is the son of God. And his refusal, his unwillingness to enter in this dispute um, has to be uh, in many ways seasoned by the idea that, that I am not, Jesus is saying, he is not going to let someone get him off of his mission. He has set his face resolutely toward Jerusalem. And he is not going to let anything or anyone get him off track. But even so, even as Jesus is, 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 is a prophet, an Old Testament prophet, even so, and even though that he has resolutely set his, his face, his mind toward the task set in front of us, he is not completely ignoring or dismissing this plaintiff's, this man's problem, his request. But instead of, of addressing the problem of his inheritance and his brother, Jesus goes to the deeper problem, the deeper problem. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possession. Jesus being true to his prophetic role reveals the true force at work between the inheritance and the two brothers. That is covetousness. That's kind of a hard word to say. The tenth commandment has been broken. Kind of appropriate for him to point that out. Jesus is revealing that at the heart of this dispute... And really at the heart of, of much of, of Israel's problems is covetousness, which is idolatry, which we'll get to a little bit later. So continuing in verse 16, Jesus speaking, and he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. Now, whenever we hear, too, as well, you know, Jesus speaking in a parable, we need to understand that parables, in part, are a ministry of judgment. Ministry of judgment. Because, because in many cases, the design of the parable was to teach something, understanding that many in the crowd would not get it. So in doing this, the ministry of Jesus as a prophet was condemning the faithlessness of Israel. Y'all get that? That's something we, we kind of, it's easy to forget. You know, when we think about the ministry of the gospel, we usually think about, and rightly, we think about the blessings, salvation, Forgiveness of sins, life with God forevermore. 
But we also need to remember that the ministry of the gospel not only brings blessing, but it brings judgment to those who refuse it. And April and I were, were missionaries in a, in a, a very, uh, in the middle of nowhere in Africa, uh, among a Muslim people, and which can be very discouraging. Um, and, and one of the things that, that we felt we weren't prepared for um, that, that really hit us hard was this idea that every time we preached the gospel and it was rejected, there were serious consequences. So the ministry of the gospel is, is serious work. Jesus took this seriously. But in his words, in his warnings, it's important for us to note that, that, that Jesus is not condemning possessions. Um, and, and even in the parables, possessions or being rich is not uniformly bad. So it does seem like Jesus picks on rich people sometimes. But, uh, but it's important to know that, that it's this the problem of covetousness at its root is not about having too much. It's not about having too much. And, and also, you know, the, the language that, that, um, that this person, this rich man is using, um, that I shall, excuse me, um, I lost my place here. He is using is, is, is banquet language, and we'll get to that soon. Um, and, and the parables, there are four parables in this section that, that, Luke's, that, that Luke records Jesus' teaching on. That is the great banquet, the dishonest manager, and the rich man, and Lazarus. And, and the idea of, of, of him talking about riches is not to condemn riches in and of itself, but help us to understand that possessions are resources to be stewarded. They are resources to be stewarded. So in, in verse 16 and 17, the rich man is faced with this very challenge. Given the, the excess that he has, the fact that his crops have, have overproduced, um, you know, an interesting problem to have, and that his, his storehouses aren't big enough. They're literally overflowing. What kind of steward is he going to be? What is he going to do with his possessions? And so the man starts to engage in, in some dialogue with himself, which if you ever find yourself doing that, it's not always the best thing going on inside of you. Um, what should I do? What shall I do, he says to self, for I have nowhere to store my crops. I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods. So as I read that, was there anything that stood out to you in the language? I. I. <laughs> exactly. I. I, I, my, my. <laughs> and the, his conceit is, is clear. He's the master of his domain. It's by his cunningness, by his uh, being a good farmer that, that he has yielded excess um, and it's by his cunning, it's by him being the master of his, his own destiny that, that he is in a place to now store up riches and relax and enjoy them forever. And of course, his conceit only grows. 
verse 19. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And again, it's, it's never a good sign when we, hopefully not we too much, or someone else starts referring to themselves in the second or third person, is it? Um, and of course, his, his, again, his language, the rich fool's language, again, reveals a shocking level of conceit. Not only have I laid up treasure for years, he says, which is the conceit of control over one's life and environment, I now, or he now, addresses and directs his soul, which is really the conceit of sovereignty, isn't it? When you're speaking to your soul, saying, soul, this and this and this, it's like you're speaking to your soul as if you are God, as if you are God. And again, to, to be clear, the act of eating, drinking, and merriment is not a bad thing in and of itself. Again, this is banquet language, and banquets are inherently good things, especially throughout Scripture. These are good things, um, and they're mentioned throughout all Scripture. And in fact, the act of eating, drinking, and being merry, as spoken by the preacher in Ecclesiastes, as was read earlier, is one of the best things a person can do when God is recognized as the one who brings about the fruit of their labor. Do you hear that? It was kind of a little bit wordy, but it, but it had to be. Eating, drinking, and being merry is a good thing when God is recognized as the one who has brought about the things which allow you to eat and drink and be merry. But in the rich man's mind, there is no God, at least apart from himself, is there? And this gets to the heart of what covetousness is, and that is idolatry. It's idolatry. And it's interesting, the first commandment of the 10 is the commandment against idolatry. The 10th commandment is, thou shalt not covet. They're, they're one and the same. For in Colossians 3, 5, 6, again, as we, as we read, Paul writes, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Covetousness is idolatry, and idolatry is the fruit of unbelief. When we don't believe that God in and of himself is capable of supplying all our needs, great and small, we by nature turn to idolatry. We begin to look to other things to, to get our fulfillment. We begin to look to other things to gain the things that we think we need, not trusting that, A, God can do it, and B, that he knows better than we do. And, and one of the, this is a very interesting thing to me, um, the way idolatry worked among the children of Israel and, and throughout the ancient Near East is, is each nation would have, if you went to a temple, you would have their, their, na their national god. And then what they would do is they would, they, would, they would fashion little idols, little idols, and one might be you know, for fertility, one might be for good crops, 
One might you know, be for, for health. And they would pl- literally place these things in front of the God. So therefore, why, why God spoke and given the commandment, you shall not have any other God set before me. It was literally speaking, literally don't set them before me, but also figuratively don't set them up in your mind, in your heart before me. You can't serve both. It's me or nothing. That is, that is the message of God. And so in response to the conceit of the rich man, his conceit of, 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 of sovereignty, um, his conceit of, of having control over all things, God responds very clearly to him through the words of Jesus. In verse 20, but God said to him, fool, fool. It is a foolish thing. The rich man's covetousness, his idolatry has blinded him to his own foolishness. And that's the sad thing about what idolatry does. Not not only does it, it not give us what we truly need, it blinds us. It blinds us and keeps us from seeing that God is the one who can truly and can only satisfy us. Who is free from the temptation of covetousness? Who does not engage in idolatry? No one. It's part of the human nature. You know, even as Christians, you know, we, who, who have been, we have left darkness, been saved out of darkness and brought into the light, made alive through Jesus Christ. We know that the old nature, the flesh is still being put to death. And as long as that is taking place, we have within us what is native to us is to be idolaters. And so this is a message that, that is very much uh, clear and, and, and germane, germane to all of us. Let's see. It is the condition of man, idolatry. And judgment, and in the case of the rich man, judgment instead of rest and merriment is coming, is coming. After saying fool, after calling the fool, God's, God's voice, his, his judgment continues. This night your soul will be required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And this is a, an interesting phrase. Instead of blessing, the things the fool has stored up for merriment are now accursed. As well is, if you notice that... The, the wording here, your soul will be required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That is, that is language. Um, and Daryl Bach, a great New Testament uh, scholar, has pointed out that this, this they, who, who will it go to? Um, in the Old Testament, this is a formulation that's often referring to the ministry of angels of death. So this is, this is kind of serious stuff, isn't it? And, and the point is, not, the point is, is not that, that God is going to, to, to send out angels of death to those who commit idolatry. 
The point is, is that idolatry leads only to judgment and only to death, apart from the grace of God at work in us. And so Jesus continues in verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So who is the fool? Who is a fool? The fool is one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And this brings us all the way back to the warning of Jesus in verse 15 at the beginning. He says, take care and be on your guard against all covetedness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And here Jesus' message couldn't be clearer. Don't lay up treasures for yourself. Instead, be rich toward God. That is really the summation. Don't lay up treasures for yourself. Instead, be rich toward God. And... There's something that I want you to hear in, in Jesus's, you know, kind of behind all of these things is, is, is the compassion of Jesus Christ. He is not giving us these commands in the abstract. Think about it. Who knows what it's like? Who only knows what it's like to own literally everything? Jesus Christ. Who knows what it's like? Who only knows what it's like to be stripped of everything? Which is what what is the ultimate way of being stripped of everything? It's the separation of the Father that Jesus experienced at the cross. At the cross. And so, even as he knows and owns everything... Jesus himself knows more than anything that God is the greatest thing to be desired. So it's important that, that, that we understand and hear the compassion of Jesus Christ. And even one who, who, who we know as a man was tempted in every way, but did not fall into sin. As a man, Jesus was tempted with idolatry. He was tempted to covet. But he remained faithful. He remained faithful. So how, how do we, like Jesus, in his words, how do we be on our guard against all covetedness? How do we be rich toward God? Well, a great, a great passage to look at is just going back a couple of chapters to Luke chapter 10, Verse 26 and 27, this will be familiar to you. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Where do you begin with being rich toward God? Where does our journey begin, in a sense, of being rich toward God? It is simply committing to love God with every we have and to loving our neighbor as ourself. And this, these two things can only be done by faith through the Holy Spirit. And this, I'll mention these in, in closing, closing. And that only the Spirit can reveal to us that God alone is to be desired of all things. 
It is literally, it is a miracle when in our hearts we can grasp the fact that God is the best. It's a divine work of the Spirit when we can understand, even though we might not have experience fully yet, but when that desire, when we recognize that that desire has been put in us, that in spite of all of these things I feel pulled toward, I know that they will never satisfy and that the only one who can satisfy me is God himself. Only the Spirit as well can reveal and convict us of covetousness and idolatry. Again, it's, it's a divine blessing. And, and, and one of the things that, that we as Christians, this is one of our, our, our great hopes, that whenever the Spirit comes, whenever God comes to us and convicts us of sin, he's not angry. And why is he not angry? Because Jesus has bore all of the judgment that we deserved on the cross so that when the Spirit comes to us and convicts us, there is now no more judgment. We are simply free and empowered to turn toward the Lord, to repent and to turn. And that is a great message, a great message of hope. And, and, and again, only by the Spirit, by faith in the Lord, can our desires be transformed. Can we have that desire to be rich toward God, to love him above all things, to desire him above all things, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so lastly, where, where do you begin in this? And on just two things. The first is confession. As Christians, this is another you know, great hope that we, we can come with full confidence to the throne of grace and confess our sins. And if you want to be rich toward God, start by confessing, Father, I don't have it in me. I'm trying to be rich toward myself. That is the, that is the place where you start. Confession. And the second step is to ask the Lord to give you the faith to desire him above all things. Again, we cannot create desires on our own, but God is able. God is able. Let's pray.